Good morning, Faith Fellowship. I have a very important question for you this morning. Why did three preachers walk into a bar? Important. Why? I'm glad you asked that. One was a Presbyterian, one was an Episcopalian, and one was a former Methodist, now Evangelical Free Church pastor. Why did they walk into a bar? Because it had a great restaurant that served great lunches. And these three pastors loved to get together for over 25 years to share a meal. Sometimes they would just meet at an office of one of their respective churches. But for 25 years, they met together to share their lives, to uh, hold one another accountable, and to pray for each other and their wives and their families and their ministries. One was your pastor, Jeff Hoy. One was uh, yours truly, Wally Schilling. And the third was your guest speaker this morning, Michael Carey. He was for 20 years the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian, now Trinity Wellsprings. And now he's a non-denominational pastor of uh, the Church in the Wild. He's accompanied by his wife, Lynn Brockwell Carey who is the founding executive director of Neighbor Up Brevard. All the details about both their bios and bona fides are in your bulletin under the announcements. Because uh, because, uh, Jeff is in uh, Israel, uh, and because he knows the three of us, uh, in my my, uh, calendar I put 3M when I have a meeting with them, and it stands for Three Musketeers. And so uh, Jeff asked if I would do the introduction since he was in Israel, and I couldn't be more blessed to be introducing my friend, my colleague, my uh, prayer partner, and accountability partner, uh, Michael Carey. You're going to be blessed because he's continuing the series that Jeff has been doing, and it dovetails perfectly with the fact that many of the things we've talked about over the year is his book that he was working on called Build Hope. It's a devotional 40 days with Nehemiah to bless your world. And uh, this is my uh, dog-eared copy. So it's really good. I recommend it. And I fully recommend Michael as he comes to share with you. So Michael, come on up and let's pray and uh, bless these people and bless our hearts and bless this time together. Father, we just thank you for Michael. We thank you for uh, the word he's going to bring this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit would anoint him, anoint his words. Anoint our ears and our minds and our hearts. Speak to us this day and build in us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thank you, Wally. And it's great to see some familiar faces here and to remember times that I've been in this place, special sacred times, sometimes times of grieving the loss of a loved one, other times celebrations, and I've been been with you on Sunday morning, so it's a a thrill to be here with you now. I will say that it's it's just really personally fulfilling to be introduced by Wally and uh, to think about the journey we've made together along with Jeff. And, And I want you to know that I have prayed for you often these last, it's actually more than 25 years, if I remember right. I've prayed for you often uh, from uh, when you were meeting in a different place and all the, all the t- turns in the road of your adventure, your odyssey as a congregation. So, again, thank you for the privilege, and it's particularly exciting to be able to preach today on this part of Nehemiah. Uh, just an aside, I- I'm really glad that Jeff will be back next Sunday and will be preaching on the next section Every section of Nehemiah is rich with insight as to God speaking truth and encouragement into our lives today. But the next section has all those names that I can't pronounce. Even though (laughs) though I've written a book on Nehemiah, I can't pronounce all those names. So I'm I'm glad Jeff will take care of that next time. I want to begin by acknowledging that this ancient saga, this biography of this incredible leader... It speaks a universal word for those who, who <clears throat> sense God calling them in our time on earth, <clears throat> not only to 
to live our best lives, but also to be involved in God's work in the world, to be on God's mission. And so there are different ways that we can hear the insights of Nehemiah, depending on the context. And I'm going to name, name these and recapitulate a little bit, and then we'll jump into today's passage. So, so years ago, I'm, I'm going to say two decades ago, when I was a pastor of a church similar to this church, and we were going through all kinds of transition. In fact, at the time, I was relatively new in a denominational church, and I, and I had what some have called holy discontent about the ineffectiveness, the relative ineffectiveness of my congregation at that time, in those early, this is more than 20 years ago, in terms of helping people know Christ personally and grow as disciples of Christ. And, and that sense that we're just not as effective as we should be. It would read the book of Acts and say, see that kind of power be manifested. I was, like many pastors, had holy discontent. And I looked at Nehemiah and I saw in, in this saga that we're reviewing a way to be inspired and encouraged as to how God will lead leaders to build back congregations. And so building back congregations was sort of the theme for me 20 years ago. It's still valid. It's still really powerful. Many books written for pastors using Nehemiah this way. And, and then there's another way, and these are complementary ways, and that's the way that your pastor has been taking you through Nehemiah. It is to recognize that like Jerusalem being broken, Jerusalem having seen its better day, and in fact there being despair, in a new year, reading Nehemiah gives us the opportunity to build back bolder our lives, to let God's word speak to our day-to-day existence and and to be able to live victoriously those abundant lives that we have been promised when we welcome Jesus into our lives. And I've been following the messages that Jeff's already preached. It's, it's, it's a compelling way for us to hear Nehemiah speaking. But there's a third way, and these are complementary ways. And it is to build back boldly a an aspect of following Jesus that's often been neglected. And it's been called missional discipleship. Because in the early church, you see this when you, when you read the New Testament. Discipleship from the beginning, following Jesus, meant a three-dimensional kind of relationship. Three sets of relationships. Primary, first of all, of course, the upward dimension, the relationship with God that's reflected in your personal prayer life and in the worship time. There's the, there's the inward dimension, and by that you mean we see the way Jesus called a small number of people to be his disciples and to make a journey and invest in them personally. And for each one of us, we know we cannot follow Jesus faithfully if we say it's only about the upward dimension. Oh no, we make the journey with others in the same way Wally has testified as to our accountability relationship and encouragement relationship over the years, you need to be investing in others. Most churches recognize this and cultivate this with programs and small group um, activities. But there's a third aspect that's often missing. For, it's missing for most American Christians. And that is the outward dimension, the missional dimension. Somehow mission has become something we look for heroes to do. A few people who go into tough neighborhoods in our community. A few people who feel like they have the gift of evangelism and they share their faith. Uh, some people who, who, um, who go overseas and become missionaries. And so often mission has become institutionalized. We raise money for missionaries. We hear about them from time to time, but we don't experience it personally. This began to give me holy discontent about 10 years ago in the congregation I led in this community. And, and for me, there became this desire to to whether it was in the congregation I, left, I led to help people follow Jesus out in the community more faithfully or in this new context I'm in, which is to work with um, a family of house churches, missional communities, where we're making it more a regular part of our life together. Uh, that's, what, that's what I do in Church in the Wild. So, 
So that kind of holy discontent infected me, and perhaps it's, perhaps it's something that has been a question for you at times. And so when I read Nehemiah 10 years ago and did a message series on it, um, it resonated with my congregation, and, and it stuck with me. And then I had the opportunity later to begin writing this book, and this uh, 40-day book, that's out for, it's for sale in the lobby, it is, a, it is a personal journal of going through the book of Nehemiah on, as, and for the reader on a quest for how can God take my holy discontent about the way the world is and can use me not to build walls, but to build hope. Because in the New Testament, what you see is the apostles going into the pagan cities of Ephesus and even Rome And they build hope there. They courageously go there as the minority that will be mocked, even persecuted. And they build hope. So they take the principles of Nehemiah, but they use those principles not to... It's no longer the time for God's people to build walls. It is the time to build bridges. So they build hope. So I'm going to recapitulate the five movements, I would say, that Jeff's covered very briefly And then we'll go into today's passage. So Jeff began two weeks ago describing Nehemiah's holy discontent. And you're probably aware of that even if you weren't here two weeks ago. Nehemiah was the brother to a leader who had gone back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah being in Persia. Now, you remember a little bit of the history. The Babylonians had taken the Jews into exile and had destroyed the, Jerusalem and the temple within it. It had been devastating, and amazingly, this was God's will, which the prophets declared. And, and then in time, the Babylonians got their comeuppance. <laughs> the Persians defeated them, and the Persian kings were, were more... Um, appreciative of the Jews. And so prior to this, as Jeff has already explained, Jews had been returning from exile, even even sent by previous Persian kings. And and so Nehemiah's brother was one of those who'd been, and he'd come back to Persia. And Nehemiah talking to him said, how are things in Jerusalem? And he got that terrible report. Things are not going well at all. The people who moved into the land while the Jews were in exile don't want us back. We've not been able to rebuild the walls in an ancient world that's necessary, part of national defense. And, and it's, it's going badly. And, and we, we read those first verses of Nehemiah, and we see how he wasn't just saddened and grieved. He was devastated. And, and he, you could later, after it's been processed, call it, Holy discontent. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But I want to ask you, because what we're doing is we're looking at the first parts of Nehemiah and saying, okay, have you gone through any of this yourself? Anybody here of a certain age remember the cartoon Popeye? Okay, all right. Let's see that. All right, so you remember basically all the Popeye cartoons had the same plot. Uh, Popeye the Sailor Man, he's got a girlfriend named Olive Oil, and he's, there's this bully named Bluto, and Bluto's big. And inevitably, Bluto harasses Olive Oil, tries to kiss her, and Popeye sees it, and he tries to rescue Olive Oil from Bluto. And initially, this is almost always how it went, Popeye's getting beat up by Bluto because he's bigger. And then finally comes that great moment in the Popeye cartoon where something up, music starts to go. He grabs a can of spinach, pops. He's so he pops off the top, and can you imagine canned spinach? Anyway, canned spinach. He pours it into his mouth. His his biceps grow. His forearms grow, and he puts Bluto in his place. That's the story of Pop. So. In the middle of all this, he says, "That's all I can stands. I can't stands it no more." So. Have you had something in the world around you where you feel like it's not just some bad news or disappointment? There comes to be something where you just like, like Popeye. It's all I can stands. I can't stands it no more. 
If you had that. That's what holy discontent is. Um, I've already told you about the two ways I had holy discontent. First, as a pastor of a church that needed to rebuild its programs. And then later, as a pastor who realized even with rebuilt programs, we needed to find a way to send the church back into the world. Um, Pastor Jeff and Ann, I mean, it was holy discontent many decades ago that led to this congregation being envisioned and some of you even coming into the, to the mix and joining that vision of a different kind of church that in Faith Fellowship has, has been that and been such a source of hope. You are what I call hope builders in that endeavor. For my wife, and I'm going to tell a story about her work later, but just you can see from the bulletin Wally introduced her. Basically, um, she and others have had a sense of holy discontent about the fact that even in our great country, there are neighborhoods where children just don't have the opportunities that they should have because of crime and because of poverty and structures of racism. And, that, and, and instead of simply saying, that's so sad, and, and moving on, or getting mad about it, because by the way, anger, getting angry when you're discontent is a way to be toxic. It's usually not from God. It, it can be at times, but... Usually, that's not how God channels. Long-run hope building is through anger. So, so Lynn's work is now called Neighbor Up Brevard, has been a result of, of a, particularly, I'm going to tell you about a remarkable lady and her holy discontent. Um, and what, you know, yourself, I, I, uh, if we were in a small group, I'd ask you, you know, what is it that's, you know, there's many things you can get upset about, discontent about in your family, in, in your immediate community, in your church, in, in the larger world. What is it that, that, you, that has really been that thing, that like Popeye moment thing, I just can't, I'm going to, I can't do something about it. Has there been something in your past? Has that been part of your journey? Or are you even cultivating now that sense of holy discontent. Well, the next thing we see, and I'm going to go faster as we recap Nehemiah. So after he has this experience, he goes through a process of prayerful discernment. There's months that he goes into fasting and prayer and grieving. And he's, he's, what he's doing is he's thinking, should I um, put to risk the good things in my life to try to do something about this terrible situation in Jerusalem. And it is, it is God calling me to do that, even more importantly. And perhaps for you, you've had to go through discernment. Because there are many things that could upset you, give you discontent. But you're going to be no help to anybody if you're going more than one direction. You've got to be focused if, if God's going to use your life to make an impact. So... Back to the story, Nehemiah discerning, this is it. He makes the big ask. And as we've learned from the story, Nehemiah happens to be the cupbearer for the king of Persia. And this was not, not a, not, it was a remarkable thing, but it was something that we hear from other stories that, like Esther... Jews in exile, because of their faithfulness to God, their ethical commitments, their hard work ethic, often rose in exile. By the way, Christians, exile culturally doesn't mean the end of us. It's a new opportunity to bear witness to the one God. Right? So, so there he had this opportunity, and after he discerned it, he, went, he, he let himself look sad before the king. Which, you know, servers aren't supposed to do that, particularly the king's server. And the king picked up on it and said, why is your face so down? And Nehemiah took a big, deep breath, and he told him why. And as Jeff said last week, it's a risk because, in a way, it's sort of, you know, the king's in charge of everything, and Jerusalem's not going well. The worst case scenario is he could have had his head separated from his shoulders for, bear, for daring to you know, c- confront the king with a situation. But God was working ahead of him and had prepared the king. And the king confirmed that sense of call 
The king said, I will send you, and I will send you with passes so you won't be interrupted on your journey. I'll send you with provision. I'm going to send you with soldiers. God answered Nehemiah's faithfulness. When he made the big ask, the provision was there. The the confirmation was there. And so for you, the question is, what big ask will you make? If it is God's calling for you, never be embarrassed to ask for money. Never. Never be embarrassed to ask for volunteers. Never. People have to be free to say, this is not my calling, I'm sorry. But never be afraid to make big ask if it's from God. And whatever it is, you know, it could be that your, your sense of holy discontent is, um, is just, you know, our neighborhood is... Um, People are strangers. They don't know each other. And what I felt God's calling me to do is have a block party. And maybe if we start if we start connecting as neighbors, I'll have the opportunity to be able to, to share 1 Peter 3.15, the reason for the hope that I have. You know, but the big ask is when, and Lynn and I have done this, when you go door to door and you ask people to help you with a block party. That's a big ask, you know. The, the silence you can be greeted with can be, Pretty scary. <laughs> and even we even had one door closed on us. So. No, we were not selling solar panels, okay? <laughs> so, so whatever it is, even if it's not a big thing that is your calling, it can feel like a big ask. So then finally, uh, we see that the amazing response of Artaxerxes and the questions for you, how will you recognize God's go ahead, go with this. You have to be prepared to think, to discover, actually, this wasn't God's vision. This was my delusion (laughs) that I'm called to do this. Somewhere along the line, that could happen. So then we saw, of course, the end of what Jeff read last week, Nehemiah's journey to Jerusalem. He took action. He went. What's your next step? Now we'll begin reading the scripture for today. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I'm going to pause there a moment. You may not have heard that term, the Horonites. We know them as the Samaritans. In the New Testament era, they're the Samaritans. The Ammonites are the people from across the Jordan River. We would call them the Jordanians. And later in this passage, you're going to hear about a guy named Geshem, and he's an Arab. And, of course, the Saudi Arabia Peninsula, the Saudi Peninsula to the south of, where, of Jerusalem. So these are representatives. These leaders are representatives of three groups of people that surround. And you can see from the map that, that um, when the Jews were taken in exile, first the Assyrians taking the northern tribes, then the Babylonians taking Judah into exile, that, that into the vacuum, the Gentile people went in and took the land, and they were in charge. And even under the Persian king, they were still in charge. It, the Persian king was letting the Jews go back, but he wasn't, to, to this point, really taking sides. He was just letting the Jews return. Nehemiah's arrival with an entourage from the Persian king got noticed, and it, and it threatened the status quo. And I'm going to say more in a few minutes, but, but one thing that's just got to be real clear right now, if your whole dream of the Christian life is just peace and harmony in all my relationships, and if, you're, if your goal of the Christian life is, is, is simply to relish the good aspects, the benefits that are promised to us, don't allow yourself to become a hope builder. Don't read the rest of this book. <laughs> and that is facetious, right? Because you will miss the adventure. You'll miss the excitement. You have a short time here on earth, then eternity, and much of what we celebrate will be the way God transformed our lives and used us for his glorious purposes. So, um, accept the fact that wherever you're called to build hope, there's going to be you know, some apathy, 
mockery, even rejection. And you will, if there are those who benefit from a bad situation, whether it's in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood, in the, commun- in the larger world around us, troubled people will be troubled. Okay? Yeah. That's where, oh, by the way, that's also where you're going to discover the power of God. Yeah, put a big asterisk there. Yeah. You, wanna, you haven't experienced the power of God lately? Start building hope. Then you'll find out how God provides and delivers. So, read uh, now verses 11 through 18, and then I'll comment on this section. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up, by, then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. A few comments on this whole section. I, I call it Nehemiah's quiet due diligence. That's a term we use nowadays, right? His quiet due diligence. He arrived and he didn't immediately say, uh, God has told me that I'm going to lead you all to rebuild the city. He didn't say, and by the way, you know, he didn't tell yet about the king that was coming. He knew he needed to do his due diligence. He he, it's interesting. To, it's, it's a fascinating narrative to get all these details. If we had more time, we could go through the map of um, the ruins of ancient Jerusalem and be able to see these places. I'm sure that in the rebuilding the walls next time when Jeff is with you, he'll probably highlight some of, the, some of those things. It's, 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 just, it's fascinating to see, and it, it, has, it, it, just, it rings with authenticity to read the details. What we see is that... Nehemiah is very practical. He's been a cupbearer to the king, but he's, he's, he's a builder personality, very pragmatic. He knows he's got to understand how he's going to organize the people that are going to be enlisted in this if it's going to happen. Where the damage is the worst, you know, how, much, how, many, how many new trees have to, how many additional trees have to be cut down, all the, you know, all the, Rocks that have to be brought in and, and cut to fit, and all that work. He's sizing that up. He doesn't tell anybody what he's about. If he were to announce what he's doing, of course, he wouldn't be ready. So due diligence is so important for people who are called like Nehemiah to follow God's calling and to build hope in, 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 in whatever particular way God has shown them. We know this, and this is something that you, you, you hear from, from business leaders and, and national, international leaders like, like, say, Dwight Eisenhower, General Dwight Eisenhower. He, he wrote about D-Day, you know, all the plans that were made for D-Day. Many of you historians know that all the plans they made for the Allied forces landing on the beaches of France, that things happened that weren't supposed to happen, and they had to change the plans. But on reflecting on D-Day, he said, In preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And that's the way it is. I mean, we need to plan, and yet there needs to be a spirit-led flexibility as we're going out and embarking on what God has called us to do. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he says, first, if, if you're leading an organization, first you seek to understand what's going on, then to be understood. First you must understand before people are to hear you and to understand what you're saying. So, examples of missional due diligence. I, uh, I'm, Lynn and I are friends with a, a, a woman, middle-aged woman, who during the pandemic 
she saw how tough it was on nurses. She'd never been a nurse, and even though um, her husband has a um, well-paying job and there wasn't a financial need, she went um, to nursing school and uh, became a nurse in order to jump in. She just had a sense that God was calling her. But she couldn't just start nursing. She needed to do the due diligence, do the work. And in, in our world, there's many things you, that you have to do, whether they're legal issues or, or just you know, safety issues. Do the due diligence before you build hope in whatever way you're going to do it. Just a little short example for my life right now. The work I have with Church in the Wild is half time. And part of that extra time was filled with getting this book done, okay? And so beginning of last year, 12 months ago, as the end was in sight, finally going to publish the book, began to ask God, hey, um, my wife's working a lot of long hours, and I really can only get away with fishing once a week. So you need to give me some other calling, whether it's volunteers or whatever. I began praying about it. And I have, a, I have a close friend who is about five years ago, he embarked on his third career. And he's now an investment advisor, a registered investment advisor. He became a CFP, registered investment advisor person. And as we've you know, shared the journey together and had conversations, I began thinking, and, and, and he's been helpful as, as those kind of people have been to many of you, to, to Lynn and I, I began thinking how, how sad it is that the people that need this the most can't afford it. Because, you know, to have a, to have a personalized service with an investment advisor, multiple meetings, you need to have a significant amount of investable assets or pay a pretty good hourly fee for that. That's natural. They're professionals like attorneys are. But this is unavailable. And so together we started dreaming. And the last six months we have formed a nonprofit. And it's a nonprofit organization that we hope we can pass muster with the registration process and the 501c3 process. Both of these are ongoing. We're actually in conversation with, with Tallahassee and with Washington. We're trying to create a nonprofit reduced cost invest, financial coaching and investment advisor firm. And if, it, if, if somehow this works, it may be the first in the country. So the idea is that people under median family income, in Brevard County that's $82,000, there would be a subsidized rate of giving financial help. So that's something I'm part of right now. But you can imagine the due diligence is incredible. The due, you know, the kind of testing I've had to do and the kind of registration process and and in care, people in the financial services industry would understand that. So whatever your calling is, whatever God has put into your heart, don't neglect the due diligence. You owe it to God as well as the community to be ready. All right, now we get to the, to the good part. I was so happy that the timing of the trip to Israel, that this was the week I got to do. So this is a great part of Nehemiah. It's all good. This is great. So... Um, This is where he cast the vision. So verses 17 and 18, he's done his due diligence. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Just in these two verses, we see the essence of of how a person casts vision. And particularly how man or woman who has been called by God to either initiate or to participate in a hope-building effort participates in the casting of vision because vision casting is an ongoing need, any positive endeavor. First of all, casting a preferred vision means you have to confront the brutal facts. That's a phrase that Jim Collins in the business book Good to Great Use, confront the brutal facts and The point he was making that in a business, 
the person who's a leader needs to, to say what everybody knows but nobody will acknowledge. Things are not working well here. We need to kill some sacred cows. We need to make changes. You name what's not right. And Nehemiah said, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose they knew that, but he started by declaring that. And, and whatever way we're called to, do, to, to be hope builders, there's a part of the cash division, and it's not to just, done to be, just to make people feel bad or to disparage anybody. It's because God has a preferred vision. We want to embrace that future and not be glued to the past if that's what's holding us back. Second thing we see is that hope building requires a call to action. Call to action. Nehemiah, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Can you imagine how crazy that sounded? There's a, perhaps, perhaps a couple thousand refugees who are like living in, in tents. And all those walls of the Babylonians had, you know, torn down the walls that had been built during Solomon's time. And come let us build. He had to call them to action, costly action. And he didn't say, you all need to rebuild these walls. I'm the representative of the king of Persia. Because he, as you'll see reading the rest of it, he put everything he had into it. Uh, But neither did he say... Hey, you know, we're going to hire out some people. We're going to do this. Just you, you all, you all, we need you to, we need you to do a fundraiser, okay? <laughs> he called them all to costly action. Funds, treasure, and time and talent, everything. He called them. And, and then we see the most important ingredient. And this is what, I mean, this is what we as God's people have as an extra weapon, if you will, Weapon for positive action. It's what secular people don't have. When they cast vision, they're, they're mainly talking about what can be done on a human way, and humanly speaking. But God's people know that hope building becomes contagious as we testify to God's confirmation and provision. The very things that we earlier in the saga had asked God to give for us. Then after God provides, we're able to testify to that. And so he describes how the king of Persia heard him, released him, even sent him, and sent him with all those resources. And that was a key part of people saying, do we dare to even try to rebuild the walls and anger the people around us in the process? Let's make the jump. It's because he cast the vision and cast it in such a way they believed it was from God. And so we see the sign of the signs of what happens when vision is not only cast, when vision is caught. It's when other people join you in sacrificial service. They strengthen their hands for the good work. There are many ways to illustrate this, but I want to offer to you a story that's um, very beginning of the prologue of my book. I tell this story because it's been one of the most consequential experiences of my life. Some of you know this name I'm about to tell you. If you've, she's been dead for a while, but uh, Sister Irene Summerford. Sister Irene Summerford, remarkable woman who lived in the neighborhood that took the name the Booker T. Washington neighborhood. Leaders in that neighborhood took that name because they had a preferred vision, Booker T. Washington being one of the outstanding leaders in the after slavery was abolished of leading African-American people. But of course, at the time they took that name, the, the quality of life did not resemble the name. Um, it was, I believe, one of the most crime-ridden parts of South Brevard County. Um, relatively small neighborhood. Some of you know the area when you drive down US-1 before you get to Aurora Road, the flashing light, Masterson, this little community there. It was once uh, where, when O'Galley was a fishing village where people of color were, quote, allowed to live in the days of racism, that community. And, and when crack cocaine and other um, drugs swept our land, uh, there was such a market to be made 
for people who did not have as much opportunity when there were people, particularly beachside people, with money who wanted to buy drugs. Just right across the causeway, go in the flashing light, pull into there and buy your drugs. The 70s and 80s, um, actually into the 90s and early 2000s, uh, became a very crime-ridden neighborhood. So children there would grow up, little precious children. And the role models would, would often be people that shouldn't be role models. And the opportunities, even as a child, to, to, for, for dealers to pay a child to be couriers or to signalers, carry messages as child, children became teenagers. Sister Irene, like other, there were, there were other church-going people in that community. There, there's actually a number of churches in the Booker T. Washington community, and people grieved this. But, but Sister Irene had this, had this holy discontent that resulted in positive action. She started a sidewalk Sunday school there. And she, Lynn is, I don't, I didn't see this at the early days. I heard about it. Lynn tells me that she would bring a generator out and, and use the generator to cook hot dogs in a crock pot. She would tell the stories of Jesus. And, and her vision was contagious. People in the neighborhood, other Jesus followers in the neighborhood started to help her. And then along the way, there, um, there were others I'll mention Sister Irene had a saying, I hope I get this right, um, Jesus plus school equals success. And so she envisioned there being one day a place that would be an after-school location for many of these children. The best situations are latchkey kids, parents working, um, but, but not home when the kids get home from school. And in and I've already mentioned some of the worst situations that children sometimes grew up in. But there being a place for them. She saw herself as Dorcas. And she saw this as, you know, and she saw this as the, the Dorcas house kind of place. That, that Dorcas, her many good deeds celebrated in the book of Acts. That, that Irene was in that role. Well, that vision became contagious. And not only... Christians in the community, but eventually Christians from outside the community. Some of them became known as Project Light. Project Light was a, was a group of people that joined Irene and, and, and expanded this ministry, sidewalk, Sunday school kind of ministry. And then along the way, God had put into Lynn's heart to take the training she had from Georgia Tech as a city planner and, 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 and to you to use those skills, that due diligence of going to school, to let God utilize your holy discontent to channel in a way that would help bring opportunity to, to all age people, but especially children in troubled neighborhoods. And, and so God prospered this vision. It was contagious. Eventually, this movement became known as the Dock. By the way, you probably heard of the dock, the after-school program there at the end of Masterson. It's now two buildings. And dock stands for Dorcas Outreach Center for Kids. <laughs> now across the street, there's affordable housing. The, the, the movement, which now is known as Neighbor Up Brevard, back then it was Brevard Neighborhood Development Coalition. Neighbor Up Brevard has been able to tear down slum housing and build, um, build housing there. Now there's been a great work called the Evans Center in Palm Bay. Along the way, there were, there were large corporations that gave six-figure grants, all, from a little, all because a woman dared to let God channel her holy discontent. And by the way, along the way, some of you, I, I won't be able to name some of them, but some of them I'm aware of is Pam DiPietro, John Williston, Kathy Toms, and George Caruso back there. There's others of you. I'm sorry I can't name you all, but, but others in this congregation have been hope builders. You didn't start it, but you joined the effort because the vision caught your attention and you were willing to pay some kind of cost to be a part of what God's doing. Even now, you are welcome to be an after-school Mentor, uh, mentor with children. Um, the children go and they study and they're volunteers that serve on a, like once a week that come in and help the children with their math and their reading and, or um, Bible lessons. So I'm sure Lynn would be glad to tell you more about that. So you will see 
And perhaps some of you have seen that when it's a vision that God has given you and confirmed it, and you've made the journey that's reflected in Nehemiah's saga, that that vision will be contagious. Well, there's two more verses to finish today. And this is just that reminder that um, hope building troubles troubled people. Okay? Verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Yeah, this is going to be a continual theme. I'm sure there'll be, you'll have a message in the weeks to come that'll be devoted to this issue of what do you do when there are troubled people who really get in the way of what God wants to do through you? And they could be people who you really believe are going to benefit from the positive change you're trying to bring, but, but yet they're, they're, whether, it's their, whether it's their ideology, their compulsiveness, their addictions, they're just fears of change. So many people are just unhappy, you know, and, 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 are, and don't like positive change, that you'll be dealing with conflictual situations. You'll discover how God provides. What we want to recognize before we end is that these people aren't the true enemy. Paul's writing in Ephesians makes, us, makes it clear to us that no matter how people threaten us or oppose us, they aren't the true enemy. And we're only fighting God's way when we recognize what's going on in the heavenlies. Ephesians 6. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And of course, Paul goes on to write about, um, about the various aspects of how a Roman soldier's armor can remind us of the spiritual protection that we have due, because of our identity in Christ. When we are threatened... It is so easily for us to respond in the flesh and become toxic, to become angry, uh, to let our fears drive us. Our faithful response is to testify to God's call. It's to testify, as Nehemiah did, to God's call and the confidence that we have that God will not ultimately not only bring about the vision to reality that God has given, but perhaps God will redeem the lives of those who are initially opposing it using the process of conflict as we become peacemakers despite the conflict. There's so many examples of this large and small in faith fellowships past. You know, on this Special Sunday, we remember how, how believers in this community have helped provide alternatives to abortion for women in distressed pregnancies. There have been so many examples of righteous causes, of, um, of initiatives taken, small and large. I know that by the grace of God, there will be many more to come. And my prayer for you is that you will experience the adventure, the adventure of the Christian life by letting God take that that discontent and after discerning, yes, it's healthy, it's healthy, it's not unhealthy, it's healthy. Yes, it's it's holy, it's 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 of God, it's it's what God, it is it is what God calls me to do. Channeling that into world blessing activity. Whether you initiate 
or whether you follow, there will be many more sagas of hope building as you let the Lord leave you. So let us pray. Gracious God, you called us into a relationship which has changed everything. By your grace, we are forgiven and being transformed. And a part of that transformation is following you, not just into religious activities that sustain us, not only into Christian community, which honors you, but also out into the world bearing the name of Jesus, and bearing the love of Jesus. For the men and women who are here, who are pondering some way that in this new year they're being called to be used by you, I ask you give them clarity as they pray. I ask that you give them conversation partner, a way of confirming that vision, Ask that you give them partners, colleagues, who will share their holy discontent. And as the journey is made together, there'll be a powerful sense of Christian community even out there in your world. Lord God, use the incredible programs and the structures of this congregation to support hope-building movements. We thank you in advance for the way that you will provide and the way that we will experience your presence and power in our lives as we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name.